So, this morning we're going to um, break things a little differently to last time. Uh, I've asked Jackie if we can have lunch earlier because I'm going to have basically three lectures today and the first of those then we'll break for lunch. I just that's the easiest way to look at this material. So if you remember last time we looked at um, nice stuff, we looked at virtue, we looked at the beauty of the moral life. We considered what it was to look at uh, the good and pursue the good. Today we are looking at um, the dark side of moral theology. We're looking at when things go wrong, we're looking at sin. Uh, and in particular, before lunch, what we're going to look at in this first lecture is the question of mortal sin. Um, which is, if we're wanting to know when sin is serious, um, then we need to know that with accuracy in terms of categories and how to identify it. Um, so if you look at the, the first page of the notes there, um, on what's down there is Lecture 3, Mortal and Venial Sin. Um, I've started with two quotations from the Catechism uh, that define mortal sin. So first, the Catechism says, Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is his ultimate end and his beatitude, by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin, in contrast, allows charity to subsist, even though it offends and wounds it. There's a couple of points in that. Charity. So, Charity, in this context, means the divine life of God himself, that divine love that is his very essence. If we have grace, we have him, we have his love. So in that being destroyed, um, we've cut ourselves off from the life of God. So it's not just that there's love and that's somehow separate from grace. By destroying charity, we are destroying the life of grace in our hearts. So that's why... It's a problem. But notice, um, how do we do that? It says, by preferring an inferior good to him. So it's not just that I directly attack God, directly have contempt for him, but I prefer some inferior good to him, even if I'm not explicitly thinking about him at all. So one of the things I'm going to try to articulate this morning is that mortal sin, in fact rarely, though it can, is an explicit rejection of God. Um, so if you think of um, sins of the flesh, is a sense the easiest example, you choose the pleasure, the desire of the sin of the flesh even if you're not thinking about God. You don't choose necessarily to reject God, but you just pursue something that is at odds with God in a way that pushes God aside. So there's a way, a mistaken way of thinking about mortal sin that thinks, well, it's a rejection of God and somehow makes mortal sin to only be contempt for God. As we'll look later, the church does say contempt for God is a mortal sin, but it's not the only mortal sin. Otherwise, there'd be no mortal sins against our neighbour. 
um, and murder isn't contempt of God, but it's a pursuing of a thing to the exclusion of God, ranking that thing that we are pursuing ahead of our pursuit of God. I'm not sure I'm stating what's already familiar to you. Um, I'm going to, well, as we've said before, you know, you have a, a breadth of different tr- formation and seminaries and whatever you'd have come from. So I'm sure some of what I'm saying here is familiar to some of you and some of you it may not be. Let me unpack that with another quote then from the Catechism. And here the Catechism is directly quoting from St. Thomas Aquinas. So the next paragraph there. When the will sets itself on something of its nature incompatible with the charity that orients man towards his ultimate end, then the sin is mortal by its very object. Whether it contradicts the love of God, such as blasphemy or perjury, or the love of neighbour, such as homicide or adultery. But when the sinner's will is set upon something that of its nature involves a disorder, but is not opposed to the love of God and neighbour, such as thoughtless chatter or immoderate laughter and the like, such sins are venial. Some objects of their very nature are incompatible with these two things that love consists of, love of God and love of neighbour. And this is what um, we're wanting to identify and thinking, well, what are mortal sins as opposed to venial? Now you might note the two examples that the Catechism chooses to give us of venial sins are thoughtless chatter and immoderate laughter. Now, these are quite small things. Um, And one of the things I'll be articulating on the next page is that actually grave matter, that aspect of mortal sin, is much easier to satisfy than a lot of popular catechesis has suggested. That if mortal sin fails to be mortal sin, I'd argue it's more typically to do with consent and knowledge than with matter. So there are things that of themselves are so small that they aren't capable of killing the life of charity within us. Immoderate laughter. And if you imagine St. Thomas Aquinas, he was living in community. If you live in community, immoderate laughter can be quite a problem. Um, But it's not a mortal sin. Um, So just interesting, noteworthy that these are the two examples the Catechism chooses to give us. Things that are quite obviously small in themselves. Next quote from the Catechism is defining venial sin. One commits venial sin when, in a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. Venial sin weakens charity. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. So 
So venial sin is problematic in itself because it is sin nonetheless. But because it by repetition disposes us to worse, to mortal sin, this is one of the reasons we need to be striving to uh, fight it. Well, not, just in a, not in an accumulative sense. Or do you mean just by tendency? Not in an automatic sense might be another way. But no, accumulative, yes. You wouldn't um, add them up and end up with a mortal sin. It's likely to, so that we compromise... It's taken obvious one in the paper in Pornography. On the screen. Would be mortal sin, actually. Yeah. Um, and it can just get worse. No, mortal sin is mortal sin. Yeah. Well, so as we'll look, there are grades of mortal sin. Yeah. So murder is worse than theft, both, though both kill the life of charity in your soul. Um, so not all mortal sin is equal, um, but it's all equally effective in killing the life of charity in your soul. But that doesn't mean it's all the same. Its repercussions for others varies, but what it does to you, to the killing the life of grace, is the same. But there isn't a precise quantifying of it all adding up, and at a certain stage of adding up, venial becomes mortal. It's more that by compromising with venial, by our character, we are likely to then compromise with mortal. And we blind our intellect is one of the things that goes with us, so that we gradually become less and less clear on what is good and evil, what is serious and unserious by compromising and by filling, habituating our passions to evil. One of the problems with that is we no longer see clearly in the mind. One of the phrases that um, I heard a lot in my um, former diocese, um, you hear clergy say, uh, well, they're doing the best they can in the situation that they have. And it covered things like um, uh, people living together, uh, not being married, because they couldn't be married for various reasons. Um, it, it sort of uh, almost clouded any conclusion anybody could make. It's sort of well, it, it just, we seem to have lost our way um, as, as clergy, because if, if, you, if you took a particular line and said, this, this is what the church teaches, this is a discipline of the church or whatever, there's always somebody else who would come back and say, well, actually, they're doing the best they can in the circumstances. So there was no line. Um. And that is a phrase that can be used to cover a multitude. Um, and, and people do use it that way. And obviously there is a valid way of using it. Uh, so we do speak about people's spiritual capacity um, that comes through habituation, comes through your 
the limitations of your psychological upbringing. Um, but nonetheless, we are all given, it is a dogma of the church, we are all given sufficient grace um, to be able to not just do the best we can, but to avoid sin. Mm-hmm. Obviously what lies behind this, this coming through the reading that we're doing, is that the church teaches there is objective truth. There's a lot of moral theology which I've been ex- heard expressed in the sorts of conversations that you just relate to, seem to indicate that, well, is there really objective truth? I mean, after all. And, and, and once, once you step outside of that understanding that there is objective truth, then other things become attainable. And I've, and I've, I've, we might not always know what the objective truth is, Individuals may not, they may be guided in terms of, you know, is this right, is this wrong, father, sort of question. But I think, as in the pastoral role, we, some, we need to be able to at least understand what the position is in the first place. Right. Before you, so that there is an objective reality, there is an objective right and wrong, even before you are subjectively looking at someone's capacity yes. to, to reach it. Um, Okay, but getting slightly ahead of ourselves, and actually part of what we're wanting to look at in the question of mortal sin will con- um, is distinguishing the objective reality, um, which is what we call the matter, and how people are subjectively engaging with that, either in their consent or in their knowledge about reality. So what this lecture is going to look at is the three conditions of mortal sin. Um, That there is grave matter, that there is full knowledge, and that there is complete consent. So basically in these notes there's a, a page for each of these that we're going to look at what these mean. Uh, And to state the obvious, one page is a description of either of these is not full justice, um, but um, it's better than nothing. So before we turn the page, um, at the bottom of the first page there, uh, I've quoted John Paul II, who is quoted in the Catechism, um, saying justice about mortal sin. Mortal sin is sin whose object is grave matter, which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. And just to be clear what I mean here, what the church means, all three of those conditions have to be satisfied for it to be a mortal sin. So if you know what you're doing, but it isn't a serious matter, it's not mortal sin. If you know what you're doing and it's serious matter, but you don't completely consent, it's not mortal sin. All three of these have to be in play for it to be mortal. If one of those three isn't, then it might be a, a real sin, but you haven't engaged with it in such a way that it's become mortal, that it's killed the life of grace in your soul. Okay, let's turn over the page. Um, I'm just 
we're talking about here. The grey matter is the objective, kind of clearly categorised component, the stuff of the demon. So I said that grave matter, this concerns sins considered in the abstract, if you're defining them. Um, I've also added this condition is easier to satisfy than certainly some soft catechesis has suggested. And I've put four categories there. Grave matter can include deeds, words, looks, and thoughts. So deeds is in a sense obvious, but words. Um, now St. Thomas Aquinas notes gossip and detraction can be mortal sin. Now that doesn't mean all gossip is mortal sin, but that when you gossip, when you talk about people, what we say actually has real consequences. And our words alone have the capacity to be grave matter. Obviously that does depend on the context of our words, what we're, we're going to do to somebody, but that words can be mortal. Looks then I've quoted Arwood himself, the man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then perhaps the category that might surprise us most, even thoughts, so pride or coveting. So the um, Council of Trent solemnly has defined um, coveting, so even the sins against the ninth and 10th commandment, coveting your neighbour's wife and coveting your neighbour's goods. That coveting alone in our thoughts is grave matter. So that even what's going on in your thoughts can be grave matter. Now I've noted a, a, a clarification there, and we're going to consider consent more in a bit, but even immediately, let's be clear. But the immediate arousal of a thought does not imply consent to it. If there's no consent, then there's no sin. If there's partial consent, then there's not a mortal sin, but a venial sin. So in saying thoughts are grave matter, that doesn't mean just because you've thought something, you've consented to it. Consent's a different question, which we're going to come on to in a bit. So you can see how that comes out of the gnostic um, context, in, in, in terms of spirituality because sometimes there are uh, there are unwelcome thoughts uh, for example one of the sins used to be on the list was I let my mind wander in prayer we well, you know that you can be at church you know in most mm. the church wants to be no I don't think about that I think about this but which is nice yeah yeah that sort of thing it's, it's you know you think to yourself no but yeah that way that can, but that can be a problem but, but even thinking about the chicken roast um, when I'm supposed to be thinking about prayer yeah. um, if I entertain that thought when I should be praying because mm. actually the chicken roast and the, the crispy bacon dripping off it um, <laughs> yes. is, <Stop> it. <laughs> is somehow more entertaining to think about than, um, than the Lord because my spiritual life is a little lacklustre at the moment or whatever um, to choose to think to choose to entertain such a thought when I should be giving my thoughts to God because this is a time dedicated to prayer. Um, Depends on who's preaching. 
<laughs> but it isn't easy. It isn't, it, isn't, it isn't easy because when you invite someone to pray, as we do in the, in the Mass, you know, in the Church, and the Lord, all those things, and the various categories which come up, you, you know, the human brain is a creative thing. You know, it's very easy to, Tis, yes. to, 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 to dive off that rabbit hole and not to... But I, I think in those categories... We're not actually talking about grave matter. Um, but also the, the mechanism by which we can acquire tools to to resist entertaining the thoughts um, is, is important. Yeah. yeah. Of our spiritual formation. Moving back to the page. Said in bold here because this is kind of the classic formulation, and I've quoted the catechism. Grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments. So, what, are, what does grave matter consist in? Well, if you specify the Ten Commandments, this tells you. Now, there's a slight problem with that, in that the Ten Commandments also summarise all of Christian life. So, it restricts things, but not that much. Um, I've noted also the seven deadly sins um, that the tradition has given us. Um, so some deadly sins formulated first as a package by Gregory the Great um, each of these are by definition mortal pride, also called vanity and sun mists, lust, anger covetousness, envy, sloth and glutton so that very briefly is your list of what grave matter is then noted a point as I've said already that the gravity of grave matter can vary, that some mortal sins are more grave than others. So theft versus murder. Both can kill the life of grace in your soul, but that doesn't mean they're equally serious. Serious in the sense of their effects on others. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase poverty of matter but it's a technical term basically meaning smallness of matter. So as I've said there, some matter can fail to be grave due to its small quantity. And obviously quantity is an analogy here. For example, in general, theft is grave matter, but stealing an apple from an orchard would be poverty of matter. So yes, it's theft, but it's such a small thing, it's not capable of being grave matter. So, a lot of... But if, if I own that apple tree, yes. and my life depends on keeping my family on the fruits of that apple tree, and somebody steals, this is... Um, you're actually moving into a question of what constitutes theft. Um, we'll look if at... We'll, okay, we'll, 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 we'll look at that actually a bit later this morning, yeah. this afternoon. But theft isn't just taking what it belongs to somebody else, but against the reasonable will of the owner. Now, a reasonable owner will feed a starving man. It's, it's unreasonable to have food and not give it to somebody starving in front of you. So, ownership, according to Catholic thought, is a real thing that the right to private ownership is real, but it is a relative right, it's not absolute. 
because ownership isn't absolute. The, the absolute thing is the gift of the goods of humanity, uh, the gift of the goods of creation to all humanity. And that is mediated through private ownership, so that we each are responsible for some part of the goods of creation. But because the absolute thing is this universal destination of the goods of creation, private ownership is always relative. So therefore, theft is when I'm taking what belongs to somebody else against the reasonable will of the owner. And in extremity, the reasonable will of the owner would be expected to share. And note the reasonable will of the owner, not the will of the owner. So an unreasonable owner might well say, it's mine, I don't care if you're starving, it's mine. That's not a reasonable will. So according to the classic formulation in Catholic theology, theft is taking what belongs to somebody else against the reasonable will of the owner. Because you're doing all of moral theology in four days, <laughs> um, you're, you're not going to get an adequate treatment of the church's social teaching. Um, but that's in summary behind what you're asking and pointing to. Um, but how you define something makes sense of it or not. Um, and what I've articulated I think is relatively clear once it's articulated. Um, but it's very different to just saying, well, it's all a bit vague, or it's all grey. Actually, it's not grey. Um, it's just whether we clearly <laughs> focus on <laughs> seeing what's doing. They're doing it. Yes. Don't worry about it. All right, before we conclude grave matter, the last part of the thing, so I mentioned <coughs> poverty of matter. Um, the church does solemnly teach that there isn't poverty of matter with respect to sex. Then quoted from a recent declaration, or as in within the last century, um, post-Vatican II, from the, so the SCDF, the CDF is what we have now, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Before that, there was about a decade where it was called the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. They're not sacred anymore, but they're, they're still... Um, so um, the document says, as I've quoted there, according to Christian tradition and the church's teaching, and its right reason also recognizes, the order of sexuality involves such high values of human life that every direct violation of this order is objectively grave. Um, so it's just, the topic is such, it engages us so much it's objectively grave. You can't just have a little bit of adultery. Um, you can't just have just a little bit of pornography. Actually, pornography engages me in such a way um, that its effect is grave. Um, now, it might be my consent isn't complete or my knowledge of what I'm doing isn't complete if I'm raised in this permissive culture that just doesn't see any problem in it. But in terms of the matter of it, you can't have a, a poverty of matter. If you've got a thing that's real, of the sexual order, it is grave matter. 
no distinction between something which is gravely disordered and something which is gravely sinful. No, I don't think so. Uh, and it won't, by, by using the word gravely, I think any document saying that is meaning that it is grave matter. That said, I think we, it's important to be clear that just because something is disordered, or even what the, another category we'll look at later, intrinsically so, that doesn't necessarily make it seriously so. So that something might be of its very nature intrinsically evil, but that doesn't automatically mean it's intrinsically serious. That its seriousness might depend on circumstances and such. So what we're saying is that there is a certain categories of human behavior that of their nature are grave. And this is what we're looking at in mortal sin. Now implicit here is that not all matter is grave that there are lots of things we're doing in our daily life that are real matter of sin but just aren't grave, that in themselves are so small that it's not possible for me to entirely commit myself in the doing of them in a way that makes or breaks my relationship with God. So just because we're saying some sins have grave matter, that doesn't mean all sins. And before we look at the next two conditions, any thoughts, questions, whatever, more? To go back to your example of the um, orchard owner whose reasonable will may or may not regard the theft of one apple as theft, uh, who, who is to define what is reasonable? In, that, in a given situation? Um, by definition, reason defines. <laughs> um, how reason is recognised, um, ownership would normally be legally recognised, but that doesn't make it ownership. Um, so you would expect there to be a significant number of cases where actually the owner and the thief would disagree over whether it's reasonable. Um, the priest in the confession <coughs> makes a judgment, does he? I would say the priest in the confessional helps the penitent to come to a judgment. Um, so there are so many things that are brought to us in confession that actually we're never going to know the whole context to be making a judgment. So we're wanting to help the penitent avoid self-deception, uh, to recognize some of the criteria to know what's going on. Um, so I'm just thinking one example that's very common is theft in the workplace. So you steal paper supplies in the workplace. Now, that doesn't automatically constitute theft. If the owner of the company, or let's say you're a small business, and the owner of the business says that it's okay to take a certain amount, but he doesn't kind of specify how much, then it's not theft. Whereas if he said, um, you know, things are very tight, I'm counting every whatever, I don't want you taking anything, actually therefore taking it anyway would be theft. 
Um, there are many cases when the owner or the size of the company is such that it isn't that clear what the owner has specified to <coughs> indicate whether you can or can't take something. But often the very fact of penitent is raising the question indicates actually there's something within them in a properly functioning conscience that is saying actually I'm not quite sure where the line is but I'm, I know I've gone over it. I spent a former career dealing with all aspects of theft and if there was any consent on the part of the owner there was no theft as far as the civil law goes or the theft act went. Right. So it was it was it had to be black and white. You know, the five points of theft were you know, laid down in the theft act and if one of those was infringed in any way it wasn't theft. Shall be property belonging to another was appropriate without the consent of the owner, with the intention of permanently depriving the owner of it. So if any of those facets were missing from the definition, mm -hmm. then there was no theft. So if well, the example you've given, the office supplies, if right. the owner gives partial consent, then that is consent as far as the law goes. Which is why in the NHS we have training on not taking even a single piece of paper or a yeah. whatever. Everything belongs to the... And that is the same with the Royal Navy as well. Right. You can use things, but not for your personal use. So if you took some paper clips home because you were preparing a paper, because you were going on a staff course, absolutely fine. But if you took your paper clips home because you wanted to make a model out of paper clips for your own amusement, mm -hmm. you've stolen them. Right. I think the, the only thing the church would want to add to the civil definition of theft is the reasonable will of the owner. So even if the owner has said, no, you can't take it, but in a way that is actually unreasonable, um, then you might be morally obliged, uh, morally permitted to take it, even though the law won't defend you in doing so. But that distinction only applies in reality uh, in extremists that there's something life-threatening about the situation. Um, so I, I need to take that car to drive for some life-threatening reason. Um, yes, it's against the will of the owner, but the reasonable will of the owner would let me borrow his car. Um, mm. The example I used to struggle with was the, the hungry man stealing food from a skip where the food had been discarded by the shop. Right. You know, who, who does that food belong to? And you have a shop which would make a complaint of theft. Right. right. Of, you know, even though they've relinquished ownership by consigning the food to the skip. And in that case, I would suggest that it would be reasonable for the hungry man to help himself. as far as the church rules. Yes, yes, yes. All right, I think we've said enough for the purposes of um brevet what we're going to be able to cover for us to say that we've, we've looked at what grave matters